Hello and welcome to the Scottish Politics Podcast. My name is David Clegg. I'm the political editor of The Daily Record and your host. I am delighted to be joined by two brilliant guests today from the SNP. I have Emma Harper, who represents the South of Scotland. And from the Labour Party, I have Neil Finlay, who's a Lothian's MSP. We'll be talking about First Minister's questions today. We'll be talking about the ban on vaginal mesh implants. And we'll be talking about, you guessed it, some Brexit as well. Uh, but first of all, let's get to know the guests a little bit. Uh, first of all, we have Emma Harper. Uh, Emma's been an MSP since 2016 and had a very interesting career before entering politics. There was a, a very interesting feature uh, in the Sunday Mail, our sister paper, recently about her life as a nurse in LA. LA. So we'll maybe talk a little bit about that. And Neil Finlay, uh, who's been in the Parliament since 2011, uh, is the Brexit spokesman for Scottish Labour, so he should be well informed on their position on that. Uh, and he's also a close colleague and friend of the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. So we can maybe discuss a little bit about how Mr Corbyn's getting on. Uh, we'll start with you, Emma. Uh, could, uh, David, David, could I say, Emma had an exciting life working in the LA. Uh, I had an exciting life working as a bricklayer in West Lothian. So yeah. Yeah. Well, well, please don't knock. I'm, please I'm, don't knock. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the few people who's read your book, Neil, so I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, well, aware of, I'm well aware of that background. Uh, Emma, could you maybe tell us a bit then about that before you, before you got into politics? I believe it was about 1990 you moved to LA, so it was, a, it was an interesting time to be out there, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a fantastic time. I moved out to Los Angeles in 1990. I worked in the operating room, um, liver transplant, trauma, lots of gunshots and stab wounds on a Friday night, Thursday night, um, and uh, it was a busy time. It was a great time to be on the cutting edge of minimal invasive surgery as it was being developed. So what brought you back to Scotland and how did you get involved in politics and how did you end up here? It was just time to come home. My, uh, I was missing the nephews growing up, I was missing my mum and dad, and uh, I didn't want to be in America when there were such exciting things happening in politics in Scotland. Okay, so so part of the part of the uh, dr- drive back, part of the thing that was pulling you back was the political excitement that was going on at the time. Is that is that fair? A little bit. I think it was part of the consideration for coming home because there had been a lot of politics in California with Arnold Schwarzenegger, the famous movie star, becoming mm. governor of California. There was issues in politics with George Bush being appointed by the Supreme Court. And uh, in, so I got involved in America and that kind of helped raise awareness of what was happening in my own country. And I wanted to be back and be part of it. Neil, just just to, just before we get on to the issues of the week, um, more widely, what do you what have you made of uh, how the summer has been for the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn? Obviously, you're a big supporter of his. Um, are you looking forward to conference and think that think that they're coming over that problems they've had, or, are you, or do you think there's still difficulties there? Um, it obviously wasn't the most uh, um, tranquil of summers, uh, um, but uh, I think part of that is that the Labour Party is a massive political party now. Um, you know we're well we're well over half a million members, and uh, when you take in affiliated and registered supporters, then it's you know it's even bigger. Within that, you've got uh, as we always have done in the Labour Party, had a very broad range of views, and uh, and those sometimes come to the surface. Um, I, I think it was a, a, an edifying spectacle across the summer, uh, but I think um, I think we've put, we're putting that behind us now. I'm most certainly looking forward to conference. Uh, it's in the one of my favourite cities in, in the UK, in Liverpool, which is just a fantastic place. 
uh, great people and it's a great place to have a conference and actually last um, the last two conferences um, you can't get a ticket as a visitor or a delegate or, or an exhibitor it is packed to the door and there's so much going on it's actually I would compare it to it's like the Edinburgh Festival rolls into town for a weekend it's, wow. it's so big. Well, I have to say, I, I interviewed Mr. Corbyn when he was in Scotland a few weeks ago. Uh, I went to Greenock to interview him, and I can remember in the immediate aftermath of the independence referendum being with uh, Jim Murphy and uh, also Kezia Dugdale after she was, when she was leading the party. And you could sense a little bit of hostility when you're out in the streets uh, from certain quarters. And I have to say, Jeremy Corbyn was mobbed in the streets. It was clear that there was affection to him. I'm not sure that the wider media story about Jeremy Corbyn is maybe picking that up. But but regardless of what I think are some legitimate problems with the way the, the, the party's been over the summer, it doesn't seem to be affecting his personal popularity. It's, 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 it's very interesting you pick up on that, Dave, from, from someone who's in the media bubble, if you like, because... Um, uh, Jeremy's a very friendly, warm, engaging person. He's not somebody who, um, when involved with other people, wants to sit and dominate the conversation. He wants to listen to people and listen to their experiences and reflect on them. Um, and he's not someone with huge ego. That's just not how he, how he operates. So people kind of warm to him. And he's different. He's a different style of politician. From he's politics. certainly a different style. He really is, and that's a good thing, because it's not that brash egotistical, here I am with a big entourage and my sharp suit and my snappy personality and I've got all my, my, my sound bites uh, perfected. That's just not how it is and I actually think people like that. Okay. Well, we'll see how that progresses in the weeks and months ahead. It's uh, just about coming up to two o'clock on Thursday. First Minister's Questions has just finished, uh, so we'll maybe start with that. The Labour Party went on uh, a report that's out today on mental health services, in particular child mental health services. And I think even the Scottish government have admitted that it was a, the, their findings were unacceptable, that the current situation is unacceptable. Uh, the target for treating young people is that 90% of young people diagnosed with mental health problems are treated within 18 weeks. That's not been met since, it's, since it was set up in 2014, and last year 26% waited too long. Uh, and the report also found that uh, little or no support or advice is given to these young people while they're waiting for treatment, uh, which the mental health minister has called unacceptable. Emma, what's your thoughts on this? Obviously, it was a, it's a difficult report from the Scottish government's perspective, but they, it seems to me they've been quite upfront about that and trying to uh, focus on solutions rather than trying to defend the current state of play. I think, um, absolutely, we need to look at the solutions and processes are being put in place which I welcome to do with um, addressing adverse childhood experiences. I joined the cross-party group for adverse childhood experiences which was set up by Gail Ross just before recess and John Swinney came and presented at that group and there was about 35 people in the room, um, some of them sharing their own experiences but everybody had a goal to look at addressing that and you know if we can look at engaging with young kids, children, you know, five-year-olds, way up front, we can help um, avert issues in the future. For me also, the announcement of... Um, uh, it's 350 counsellors and 250 extra school nurses and then an extra 80, I think, um, higher education counsellors is great because, again, that's helping address the issues that may present 
uh, at an early time so that you can prevent rather than wait for you know crisis to occur. So as a nurse, my background isn't mental health, but we were prepared in certain aspects of our care to address mental health needs. Neil, as a, a former health spokesman for Labour here, uh, what, what's your thoughts? Do you think they're doing enough now? Well, I have to reflect first of all on what's happening in my, my own uh, region and people coming through my office door um, or contacting us week in, week out. And people people are in desperate situations. I mean, really desperate situations. And that's um, we've, we've got parents coming to us who have got young people in school who are um, uh, have a whole... Um, or they're not getting into the school, they're being excluded from school, they may be uh, running away from home, they may be involved with drugs or, or, or the like, and, and, and their mental health is absolutely crashing. Um, we've also got um, more adults presenting to us with mental health problems. I've got um, constituents at the moment who are in desperate needs, need of assistance for um, addiction, particularly with drugs. And the situation is dreadful. They feel as though there is nowhere to help them. Absolutely powerless and helpless. Um, and it is getting worse. It is getting significantly worse. Um, so I welcome any moves to try and address this situation. I mean, think, David, if you... Uh, I, I know you're a parent, but if you think that um, your child going through an absolute crisis and you're watching them across the dinner table, mm-hmm. you're watching them not attending school, their lifestyle becoming chaotic because of their mental health problem and you can't, you're powerless to help in that. That must be the most frustrating and, and terrifying thing for any parent to sit and watch that. Yeah. I noticed you mentioned drugs there. Uh, this particular report has been dealt with largely by funding and, and counsellors but you're talking a bit more about some of the, the causes of the mental health problems rather than the, the treatment for it. I know that that's something we have discussed previously. Um, could you could you tell us about your concerns about about drugs and the impact it's having? Because you, you're concerned that this is becoming an, a, a greater problem, aren't you? Uh, the, the, I mean, the use of uh, illicit drugs uh, is massive in Scotland. It is completely underestimated. I, I see my own community and communities around me where cocaine use has just become the norm for young people. Uh, it's a huge, huge issue. And um, there's, I think there's a lot of pretending that it's not the, the, the scale of the issue that it is. I think drugs policy is failing and failing miserably. And um, we have to look at this again. If you look at country, a country like Portugal, which I mean, we've got the biggest, um, the highest level of drug deaths in Europe. Yeah. If this was people who were dying because they had contracted measles or meningitis or flu, there would be a national emergency. There would be there would be some sort of task force set up. There would be money invested. We would be vaccinated. We would be doing all sorts of things. Mm. And yet, a thousand of their fellow citizens are dying through drug use, and we are doing. Emma. Well, actually, last year, um, actually before recess, Aileen Campbell presented a debate about safe safe consumption facilities, where what we need to do is um, decriminalise the issues around drugs, because the people that I have engaged with that have taken drugs or excessive alcohol, there are reasons behind what leads to that, and I have issue with criminalising people who do find themselves taking drugs that are illegal, whether it's cocaine, whether it's heroin. Um, you know, I think there's progress that has been made allowing folk to, or giving people 
Narcan pains, which are reversal drugs in a pain that can be injected if somebody overdoses at home. And a, a lot of these issues are there to save lives and need to be evidenced and researched. And so I support the idea of a safe consumption facility that was proposed to be established in Glasgow. But uh, Aileen Campbell, when she was minister, wanted to try and get that message across to Westminster because it is a uh, reserved could issue. I, could I say, Emma, if, if you're coming to the conclusion that we need to are you saying we need to decriminalise drugs? Is that what you're saying? Because because I think that is the debate that we need to have. And if you're saying that, I think that's welcome that you're willing to say that. And and, and I'm not making I'm not trying to make a political point on this. I just think it's people from the SNP need to, need to be able to speak out on such serious issues. And if that's taking a different view, then I well, welcome that. I know that you set up this cross party group. Or you were trying to get this cross-party group together. What? Sorry, just remind me what stage we're at with that. Well, uh, what I, we, we wrote to the um, Scottish Futures Forum, which is an organisation within the Parliament that does research, and uh, it's a think tank basically. And we've got them um, a commitment for them to, to look again at drugs policy and what we should be doing in Scotland. So are they looking at that at they, the moment? They, they have told me that they're going to be looking at that. And, that's and, what, a good and what, thing. Is, what SNP parliamentarians were was involved in that? Alec Neil was involved in that. Because so it, it does seem from the outside that it's not something that, you know, combative Let me chamber see, politics is going to... I couldn't give a toss about the party politics in this. This is far too important. Far too important. We're fit. Emma's not in an agreement. People are dying on the streets in record numbers in my community and in every every MSP's communities. And we can put the duvet over our head and pretend it's not, or we can do something about it. Emma. Yeah. Well, when I was on health committee, when I first started on health committee, um, Neil Finlay was a convener, and so you're, you're now the deputy convener. Is that correct? Just just for the listeners. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I joined the health committee before Christmas recess. And um, so I'm a relatively short time I've been on health committee, but I've got 30 years of experience in healthcare. And I think just about every member of my family is a nurse or something to do with healthcare. But I think as part of our evidence, we were looking at models of drugs and alcohol treatment and the Portuguese model has been working. And uh, I'm not suggesting I take over the government's model for changing the way we deal with alcohol and drugs and decriminalisation, but I welcome any debate and discussion to look at opportunities for looking after folk. We've talked about this in chamber, about the people who are taking drugs and, and excessive alcohol. There are mothers, brothers, sisters, fathers, it's our family members. And probably most of us will know somebody who has been adversely affected one way or the other. So I think uh, I welcome any information that's been put forward with Scottish Future Forum and, and that's what we need to do. And also this is a, I mean the, the, the whole issue around drugs and alcohol is absolutely, you know, is, is very central to the debate around mental health and, uh, and, and wellbeing, of course it is. Well let's move on to another health issue which has been in the news this week. Uh, Jean Freeman, the new health secretary, made a statement yesterday on these controversial mesh implants. Uh, where there's uh, effectively a, a ban being introduced immediately. Uh, this came after the death of a 75-year-old woman called Eileen Baxter, uh, where the implant that she has received was, was listed as a potential cause of, of the death. Now, this is an issue that you've been doing a lot of work on 
almost for as long as I can remember you in the Parliament. Can you maybe just, just, just for people who are not familiar with the issue, could you maybe give us a bit of background about how you became involved in it and what exactly yeah, it is? Yeah, you know, I was only in Parliament a year, I think it was, and I became the Shadow Health spokesperson for my party, and uh, I got a file of um, um, uh, cases and issues that were passed on to me from my predecessor, Jackie Bailey, and one of them was one, basically one piece of paper about mesh, and I started to investigate what this was and, and, and what it was that was going on. And of course, um, you know, I have to say for a, you know, for a big lump of a, you know, working class bricklayer, um, talking about women's gynaecological problems is not the top of my agenda. So we, both with the women who were very, obviously very reluctant to talk about a very personal issue and sure. us, um, we had to quickly overcome any mutual embarrassment about talking about these issues. And I've been really surprised, um, quite astonished over the years about how much the Scottish media doesn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, we held press conferences and all sorts of stuff through the campaign. And when I spoke to some journalists, they said, oh, we don't do these type of things. So I'm quite astonished that in 2017, With some noble exceptions. With some noble exceptions, I have to say, but uh, uh, quite a few, quite very few at the beginning, I have to say. However, um, the women who came to work with us were absolutely superb, and um, we, we struck up a tremendous relationship with them. Uh, and also from uh, um, the journalist Marion Scott, who's been dogged in pursuing this, and she has been a tremendous asset as well. Um, I have to say the announcement during the week, yes, it was progress, but what we've done is we have just moved Scotland to the position where the rest of the UK is. And what we're basically doing is we're halting the implantation of mesh. But ironically, the mesh that uh, contributed to the death of Mrs Baxter is not covered by this announcement. Why is that? Because the type of mesh that she got was for uh, an abdominal mesh. That is not covered. It's transvaginal mesh that's covered. So Mrs Baxter, the mesh that contributed to her death, is not covered by this. Okay. Now that in itself as a problem, a huge problem, but effectively what the government has done is caught up with the what's happening. So what would you UK. what more would you like to see in that case? My, my personal view is that this stuff is uh, we should be adopting the precautionary precautionary principle and we should be halting the implantation of all mesh. Entirely. Yes. Okay. Yes, because is that Labour policy? Uh, th that's my policy. Okay. Okay. Um, listen, I don't think this is about um, party political policy or, uh, you know, please, um, well, this is not... You're, you're in a position to influence the Labour Party's policy. Yes, yeah, absolutely, but I think it's right, right? We're not, we're not talking about, um, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put in your manifesto something that is as, as technical or as um, uh, specific as that. Yeah. But I think in general we should adopt the precautionary principle. Now, that does not mean <coughs> that all mesh that's implanted is bad. That does mm -hmm. not mean that. But for um, these types of procedures where we're seeing more and more numbers of people coming forward with complications based on this type of product, then we're in a very, uh, I think we're in a very difficult situation if we continue to do that. Particularly given that Mrs Baxter's death certificate last week identified as um, the mesh implant as one of the underlying causes of yeah. her death. Okay, I want to bring Emmett in this point because you have a, quite a bit of experience of, of, of mesh as well. Could you maybe outline that for the listeners first and then we'll discuss some of the issue? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know the particular specifics of the case, but when I worked in the operating room here in the UK and in uh, California, we were doing mesh implant procedures all the time for hernia repairs. Mm -hmm. And the Shouldice Clinic... Um, 
in North America does hernia repairs all the time. And one of the things that's tracked in any implant is the ID numbers, almost like a wee passport for any device that's implanted, whether it's a hip or a, a knee prosthesis or a hernia re- uh, mesh. And so we also track post-op infections and different uh, issues that then could be attributed to an implanted device. But there's no, there's no register here. Well, it's something, if it's a national register that needs to be looked at, each operating room department has a register of implantable devices and each person's case notes has recorded the mesh. So if we're looking at a, a wider traceability approach, if it doesn't exist here right now, it might be a matter of then all NHS boards correlating, gathering, inputting their data, looking at all their implanted devices in one area. We're doing it for other things already when you're that's gathering been, that's data. That's part of the problem, that we've found it really difficult to um, coordinate this. We've had, I think yesterday's announcement included some t- sort of register, um, but uh, uh, in the past there's been no register of devices and that's been trying to quantify this and trace the people who've had implants to tell them what's happened has been very, very difficult. There are mesh products that are like wide-ranging, made by different uh, companies, and some polypropylene implants might have different levels of plastic in them, right? There are some products that are made of Gore-Tex, which is the same... um, It's the same product that you put a new aorta in when you're taking somebody's aortic aneurysm out. So there's... It is wide-ranging, it's quite diverse... There's different abdominal approaches. There's different approaches for ventral hernias versus hernias that are um, inguinal, so men versus women. So I think we should be looking at maybe a wider opportunity to have a recordable database where we know who's getting the implants, what's happening, what's the traceability, has there been post-op infections? Because it's obviously a, it's an issue that it's new for me coming to this sure. as a new member here. But looking at the... the incidents in the research and and the tragedy of somebody that's had a death because of a device that might be implicated um, I think obviously there's something more we can do. Is the health committee still looking at this issue or is that... uh, Don't know know. that I'm aware of. I mean the thing, there was a public petitions committee who were doing their inquiry. Of course yes but um, one of the things that um, upset me about yesterday is that we could have taken the steps that Jean Freeman announced yesterday four years ago and within that period, I would guess we think the numbers are roughly around a thousand women have been implanted in that four-year period. That's a thousand women who I hope all of them are well and mm-hmm. will see no complications. But given what's happened in the past, where we see women who have um, lost organs, women who have um, lost their mobility, who have lost um, their jobs, their relationships, their love life, their ability to function normally, their continence, all of that has had um, a a brutal impact on many lives and many families. Uh, Many of them no longer work, some have lost their homes. This is the extent of this. And we have to say though, uh, uh, if we look across the globe, we are seeing um, people in the United States being paid out in single cases, 30 million pounds. We saw the partner of one of the women in the United States being awarded, I think it was £5 million, for an injury that he sustained during intercourse. We've got the biggest class action in Australian legal history. 
we've got cases in um, in some US states where there's twenty and thirty thousand cases. Sam. Yeah. I mean, this is massive. This is a massive global and it's an international issue. Global health scandal. I think currently there's probably between five hundred and a thousand cases sitting in Scotland. Uh, I don't know about the rest of the UK, um, but this is going to be one of the biggest um, um, legal cases taken against the NHS. I suppose Emma, the question then is, what can the Scottish Parliament do? Obviously, they're in charge of the NHS here, so that the, the announcement yesterday and, and and forward from there. Uh, what, what more can be done, do you think? Or are we kind of at the level of what can be done from this place? Yeah, well, I, um, I, the Scottish Government um, obviously had taken the, the, the stance yesterday to halt all procedures, but, uh, and that's good, and have people feed into the review. I don't dispute the injuries and the issues, and, and I think actually to speak openly about how people are having issues with continence or... You know, talk. You don't very often hear people speaking the word vagina mm-hmm. on radio or Absolutely. telly, and whether you call it transvaginal repair or transvaginal, it's about making sure that people are aware how serious this mm-hmm. is. Um, and when Neil's describing the issues that people are having with just their like relationships, sexual intercourse, pain, um, pain for you know, for both people, so. That is obviously really important, and if there's a thousand patients in Scotland that have had these implants since four years ago, and it's an international thing, it would be interesting to see how we can progress it in a way where there is maybe obviously engagement, traceability, education, good informed consent, because there are people that... um, Capsec uh, Freeman talked to yesterday that said that she had received letters from people who said it changed their life having the procedure mm-hmm. and they've had no ill effects. Sure. Now that's something that is quite powerful as well so looking at the evidence, supporting the evidence, making sure the evidence um, is prepared in a way that we can support everybody yeah, as well as the people that have been I mean, injured. Couple, I, I, need, I want, I want okay. to move on shortly okay. Neil, if, yeah. if you want to have one final no, thought. No, just a couple of things. I mean this is, actually goes to a, a higher political um, issue in it, but this is about the power of very large business corporations exploiting the situation. They, we've got um, documents, there's been media stories about this, where corporations were told that this plastic product should not be implanted in humans and they continued to do that. And these people should be behind bars. Just, just please don't name any because the legal budget for this podcast <laughs> is not particularly great. Uh, at, at that point, I'm just going to move on now because uh, we're running, running out of time, but uh, I feel like we should discuss uh, the current Brexit situation. It's been another day with, with lots going on. Uh, we've had more papers about the implications of a no-deal Brexit being released today. We haven't had a chance to see the detail of that yet. Uh, and there's a... a long cabinet meeting about it this morning and I believe Mike Russell is now meeting with uh, counterparts in the different parts of the United Kingdom. So I, th- I think rather there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of detail we get to get into there but I think maybe what I'm most interested in at the minute is just speaking to both of you about your party's position, what you think is going wrong with where we are at the minute and what your party would like to see done, done differently. I'll start with you Neil as you're the Brexit yeah. spokesman for Labour here. Uh, I suspect, like everyone else, you're not overly impressed with the current UK government's st- steering of this. What 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 do you think should be being done differently? Well, I think uh, I mean, don't want to rake over old ground, but really, they um, from the outset, I think they were 
pretty clueless and, and, and very slow off the mark. Um, we saw a long period of time passing with nothing really happening. Uh, and as Brexit Day moves closer, then you know people getting anxious about what what the the, the, the final arrangements are going to be. And if you speak to business community, if you speak to people in the exporting sector and whatever, they say you know just tell us what the hell is going on so we can prepare. Okay. And that's the that's the anxiety. So you wouldn't start here if you could avoid it. But given, given given that we are here. If Labour was to win a snap general election yeah. next week, what would they do? Well, we would certainly be opening up those discussions with a different attitude. We see the, um, our European partners as our friends, our mm-hmm. colleagues and, and our partners going forward. And it's in our mutual best interest to come up with a deal that works, that works for them and it works for us. That um, uh, movement of goods, that um, the sale of goods back and forward, it's what keeps people in jobs. It's what pays the taxes that contribute to our economy and keeps the country going. So there's a. It's the single market not the answer to that then. Well, but you have to respect the referendum, David. We have to respect the referendum. What we've said is we want access to that single market on, on the same or similar terms, and that's what we've tried uh, to put forward to the government. It's one of the the, the, the red lines in Labour's six tests, and we will pursue that. Um, if you, I, I think there's a danger. If you try to um, uh, just dismiss the referendum as having not happened, uh, but it did happen, and we have to take that seriously as well. Emma, what what the SNP are obviously pushing for single market membership and the membership of the customs union. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is the best result that you that the SNP can feasibly get out of this? A second independence referendum. <laughs> The best result would be an independent country like any normal country okay. in the, the European Union so that we can make the decisions for ourselves and not just have to have a pocket of or a purse of cash uh, given to us. Uh, so but that an, would be an independent, me, that Sc- an independent Scotland in the EU with the rest of the UK out of the EU would pose a lot of challenges. Of course it? it would. I think, you know, a no... A no deal, which is what Liam, Liam Fox is saying, there's a 60-40 chance of a no deal. Um, you know, the First Minister says, OK, the, the, the worst case or the worst of the whatever scenario is put forward by this checkers deal that seems to be just different spinning plates in the air is that we need access to the customs union, the single market. Our farmers are, are now faced with this agricultural bill that has been presented and so when we start to dissect that what does that mean we've had issues with the trade bill being discussed and then um, Brexit this week in uh, finance and constitution committee where my issue has been highlighting protecting the provenance of the Scottish produce our beef our lamb and our salmon and uh, we're heading into debate chamber this afternoon talking about how fantastic our food and drink story is for Scotland so I don't want to put any of that at risk. I want to protect the economy of the southwest of Scotland and the South Scotland, the region that I represent. So I think we need to maintain access to the customs union single market. And, you know, we certainly need our immigration uh, a policy to be devolved to Scotland. So, And I would hope that uh, if there was a snap election and Labour won next week, they would support a separate immigration policy for Scotland. Would you? Could it, uh, I'm sympathetic to there being uh, um, flexibility within the immigration system to meet uh, 
national and regional needs. Absolutely, I'm I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Mm-hmm. I think that's all, that that's works in other countries and it can can be done. But I think the um, the issue for the for the SAP in this is that they must be learning that it is difficult to extricate yourself from a political entity without a whole series of problems emerging. We've only been members of the EU for 40 or 50 years and look at the complexity of that. And yet we've been a member of the United Kingdom for 300 years and they tell us you can get rid of that in 18 months. Mike Russell told us yesterday we had done all the preparation to get us out in 18 months. And on top of that, the UK market for Scotland is worth four times as much as the European market. Why on earth would we want to um, cause barriers between uh, our biggest market? Um, it just does not add up. The, the law of the Scottish politics podcast is all conversations will inevitably come back to Scottish independence. And, and here, and here we, you started I, it. I know I did. I know I did. Uh, do you want to respond to that point briefly, Emma? Well, and then we'll maybe have a final thought on Brexit before we finish. Yeah, I mean, the, some of ideas that are just in my head, you know, as a new MSP, I still consider myself relatively new because it's it's been two years. But, you know, when the Secretary of State for Scotland stands up in the chamber and says, we are not a partner, we are part of, you know, I thought we were supposed to have an equal say in, in how do we move forward, you know. The Scottish National Party wants to make sure that the people of Scotland are protected. And I am behind that. I'll stand up for the folk in the south of Scotland as well as the rest of Scotland. So I want whatever the best deal is that we can have that supports our economy going forward in Scotland. OK. A final prediction then. I'll start with you, Emma. What, what, what do you think the ultimate outcome is going to be on the Brexit situation here? Do you think we're heading to a no deal or do you think that... Some kind of fudge will be found. I think, you know, first we started with a soft Brexit, hard Brexit, and we are start, starting to move. One of my friends talks about the Overton window. He says mm. we're starting to move to the point where now it's either a no deal or a crap deal. Mm. And maybe I shouldn't have said that that's, word. That's, okay, that, that's that okay. okay? Yeah. Okay, so I worry that they're preparing us for just a no deal. And then how is that going to affect our jobs, our NHS, our farm workers that are milking the coos in the south of Scotland. It really is an issue that personally I'm worried about and folk that I speak to, especially the farmers, are worried about as well. Neil, where, where do you think we're heading? Well, I, I, I couldn't help but um, cringe at the footage yesterday from the European Research Group and their behind-the-scenes photograph that they put out. I mean, it looked like the world's worst pub quiz league um, <laughs> team sitting there scratching their heads over what was the actual name of their team. Uh, so, I, I mean, it was desperate-looking stuff, and you see utter cretins like Boris Johnson and, uh, and, and Rhys Mogg, who, I, I, I mean, I, I, I could not have any, any less in common with these people if, if I tried, and... Uh, um, they just, it sends a shudder up my spine that these people would be anywhere near the levers of power. Um, so where will we end up? I desperately hope that um, the proposals that May puts forward are so um, unacceptable to the Tory party that they are willing to, I think they are willing to do anything. Remember, they've been at this war for 40 years yeah. Uh, all my political life, it was Maastricht when I first came into politics that they were tearing themselves apart over. Um, they've been at it all my political life. It has to come to a head at some point, and I think they 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 despise each other 
and they despise uh, you know the European Union and, and frankly anyone who isn't English uh, or, or uh, so much um, that they are willing to do anything um, and I think they could um, they could um, blow the the Conservative Party apart and I'm let's better. have a general election because that's what I would like to see. I should say that there's no Brexiteers on the panel and they would probably dispute the <laughs> allegation that they, they didn't hate, even mention they, they the hate, civil war. They hate everyone who is English. But on that note, I would like to I would like to thank you both for joining me. It's been a, it's been a really interesting discussion. We'll be back next week uh, and thanks for now. Cheers. Thank you.